Before we jump into this episode, I just want to present this production, this poem that is read by Birgitta, the title of which is Wake Up. She made it specifically for this podcast, so please enjoy. I have seen signs. The end of the world, as we know it, has begun. Don't panic. It might look terrifying on the surface, but inside every human being, a choice. A choice to act out of fear or love. Earth is calling, sky is calling. God is calling, creation is calling, wake up, wake up now, wake up now. Generate the capacity for love, for compassion in your heart. Now is the time to yield to the call of growth, to the call of action. You are the chainsmakers. Sleepers of all ages, wake up, wake up, now. folks thank you for tuning in to this episode of last born in the wilderness if you'd like to learn more about this project go to the website lastbornintheWilderness.com. you can find a link to that website down below and everything i'm going to mention is going to be in the description and on the website if you would like to subscribe to this project there's multiple platforms it's streaming from the host site is soundcloud but you can find it on itunes stitcher google play radio public and very recently on spotify but if you want to support this project monetarily there's two ways to do that you can do so through a one-time donation go to paypal.me slash last born podcast you can make a one-time donation basically like a tip if you like this episode if you like any other particular episode i've done consider throwing a few bucks my way it's very helpful and if you want to support this project on patreon which is to do a monthly contribution you really sustain this work through patreon you go to patreon.com slash last born the wilderness and there you can make one dollar or more a month contributions and it really helps because it all pulls together more and more people are supporting me even just doing a dollar or whatever amount you want a month it all adds up and it allows me to uh, do this work more independently uh, and just really focus on, on doing the research the interviews and this project takes a lot of time and effort to do so anybody willing to support me in this endeavor I'm just so incredibly appreciative of and I would like to say one last thing if you want to call in which is i have a phone number set up i call it the drop me a line phone number uh you call this phone number you can leave up to a three minute message and i can put it at the beginning of these podcast episodes and then i respond to them and one thing that i'm going to be doing uh, and i'll probably mention this when i do put another call at the beginning of an episode uh one thing i'm gonna do is i'm going to put my responses at the end of the episode so if you look down below in the description you'll see at the very top there's going to be a timestamp. 
and it's going to say when the introduction is over and when the interview begins and it's also going to indicate when the interview is over and when my response to the drop me a line call begins i decided to put that at the very end of the episode because my introductions are getting really fucking long and I think a lot of people enjoy them, but a lot of people are like, I just want to get to the interview, which I totally understand. Before I forget, I should tell you what the phone number is. Uh, you can call the phone number 208-918-2837. That is 208-918-2837. I almost always forget to do that, to give you the phone number. I just tell you to call it. But if you want to see that phone number again, it is in the description. So look down there and you can find that phone number. So everyone that has supported this project, thank you so much. That is all I have to say. Thank you for listening to me up to this point. Here is the episode. In this episode, I speak with Birgitta Jonstokter. I, I had practiced saying her name numerous times before I recorded this, <laughs> so you can kind of tell that I, I have a hard time with Icelandic. Uh, should be apparent by, by the fact that my, the only language I speak is English, <laughs> and, and uh, so she was very kind and, and helped me, uh, you know, pronounce her name. Uh, I, I tried my best, so I'm sorry if I, uh, of course, butchered that. In this interview with her, we discuss her role uh, as, a, as an MP in Iceland. She was uh, one of the founders of the Pirate Party in Iceland, which was formed after many of the financial and political crises that struck Iceland in, I think, 2007, 2008, 2009, that whole period. Um, and also the subsequent leaks that came out of WikiLeaks. Uh, they released some information which was taken very seriously by the Icelandic population, which led to kind of uh, a real political moment in the country in which she explains how she got involved in that, because she describes herself as a poetician, but she also describes herself as an anarchist. So the first thing I ask her in this interview is like, how the hell does an anarchist reconcile with working within a, a formal political party, even if it is as anarchy-inspired, maybe, as, as the Pirate Party? You know, How do you reconcile being an anarchist and serving as a member of parliament in Iceland? Her, her major story at the very beginning is explaining how when the party became a part of the establishment, it lost its importance. And then she gets into her role in releasing uh, collateral murder. Because of the leaks that came out of WikiLeaks, because of Chelsea Manning, we were exposed to war crimes. We were exposed to the war crimes of the U.S. empire and its occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan. In particular, with the leaks from, from formerly Bradley Manning, now, of course, Chelsea Manning, her uh, contribution was showing specifically what was going on in Iraq. And Birgitta, she directly helped produce and release this video. So she worked as a collaborator with, with WikiLeaks uh, to release the collateral murder video to the public, which is now infamous. And considering what's going on right now with Julian Assange uh, and Chelsea Manning, and other whistleblowers like Reality Winner, as, as, as she mentions in this interview, you know, the United States and its allies, including, you know, the United Kingdom and Ecuador and all the various other players in this, they are all contributing to the expansion of the surveillance state and ultimately hand in hand with the expansion of surveillance capitalism, which we also move into in this interview. So I ask her to explain her career, her <laughs> very interesting life, uh, how she got involved with WikiLeaks, her major contentions with Assange, uh, and why she you know, no longer works directly, at least with WikiLeaks. And we also get into a lot of other subjects. So I, I don't want to say too much more because it really is a wide-ranging discussion. 
you know, without even realizing it, I've been a big fan of her work. And I remember hearing about the Pirate Party. I think a lot of us have heard about the kind of radical uh, moments that have existed in Icelandic parliamentary politics. Like there have been real moments that have been like really fascinating. Like you wouldn't see it almost anywhere else. But anyway, this this whole discussion really just is an examination of an individual who was exposed and participated in some of the most interesting political moments that I think we've had in recent history. And we fit it within a broader trend that her and I, we, we have been seeing with the rise of the surveillance state, the rise of surveillance capitalism, and how that's, this has impacted whistleblowers, how this has impacted, say, Julian Assange, who we had recorded this interview, I think just a couple days, if I remember correctly, before Assange was forcefully removed and arrested by the British police from the Ecuadorian embassy. We had known this was going to happen. And so I asked I ask her to explain her, her relationship with WikiLeaks and Assange and how she has very serious criticisms of Assange, but still understands how, you know, the implications, the very dire implications this has on freedom of press, on journalism, on the ability to express and expose so-called classified information uh, to the public and the public's right to know. So I, I really have to thank her for taking time to talk with me that we could find a moment in our day to uh, to have a really long, in-depth discussion. And I want to say one last thing. So we had like almost a three-hour discussion. And I think in this, this, this interview in total that you're going to listen to is about an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes, something like that. So the first hour of this discussion wasn't really properly an interview or anything like that. It wasn't very structured. It was just us talking. And I asked her at the end of the interview if it's okay if I released that hour, first hour uh, to my patrons. So if you're a supporter of this project, you can listen to that first hour. She gave me permission to do that. So if you want to learn more about her work, you can go to her website, birgitta.is. That's B-I-R-G-I-T-T-A dot I-S. You, you can find everything you want to know about her there. And you can also find her on Twitter, Birgitta. J. I'll put a link to that down in the description. Her story is just so fascinating. I just recommend looking into her life story. She's just super amazing. She seems like a ball of contradictions. I don't mean that in a negative way at all. It just means that her road has been, the road that she has traveled down is, is very unique. Uh, and and once you kind of talk to her and, and let her kind of expound on her, her process, it all makes incredible sense. <laughs> She's traveled the way that she has. She cares very deeply about people about freedom, about the ability for human beings to have sovereignty over their own lives, and to be able to understand the various institutions that supposedly govern us. She's just very passionate, very direct, and very honest, and I am incredibly appreciative of her and what she has done. So without any further delay, here is my interview with Birkita Jon Stockter. Yeah, well, I have just a few like points I would like to get to, um, and uh, mostly it's about you know, your background uh, with the Pirate Party. Um, and and I have a, a kind of an interesting points that I wanted to get to about how the way Iceland, it's like, it, it, it kind of baffles me because being in America and looking at the American political system and, and being really almost allergic to it, which is to say, I'm an anarchist or I view myself as such. And thinking about participating in any sort of former f- formal politics or you know political action or to join any of these organizations any of that just seems almost repulsive is a strong word but I, I I get it but it's also like I feel like it's so it's so structured in such a way 
as to not allow for real substantial changes to occur within. I feel like it's been really hedged in that direction. And so when I look at you and you're like, I'm an anarchist, but I also served as a member of parliament in Iceland. And it's like, it's like it kind of fucks with my mind a bit. Cause I'm like, how do you do that? How do you reconcile <laughs> hating laws oh. and government and struck, not hating it, but like, you know, having a, a natural distaste for it, but also like, Oh, I'm going to go participate in this as well. It's like, it's, it's interesting. I, I find, I wanted to kind of get at that. Um, as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm really an old school anarchist. I mean, uh, I'm I, I come from this sort of punk era, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, my favorite favorite um, band was uh, a UK based uh, sort of a cooperative uh, art co- cooperative called Crash, uh, and um, they really influenced me so much about you know my I was listening to them when I was like 13. 14, 15, uh, when I was really sort of, it's these sort of formative years. And they always directed you to start to do stuff. Like it was really like the heart of the do-it-yourself generation. And uh, <clears throat> and I, I remember that, um, you know, I, I found this little booklet um about sort of the philosophy of anarchism and I really liked it because it was really about taking responsibility you know not only for yourself but also for the community you live in because you know anarchism is always identified with chaos and that couldn't be further from the truth because it is really about very organically structured societies where people uh, you know it's basically about societies very similar to the idea that people have a democracy but it's just much smaller and I think one of the problems we have with our societies is that they have become so, you know, complicated that you just don't know how to even be a lawful citizen yeah, <laughs> because you yeah. can't really understand the laws. They are written by lawyers and technocrats. And, you know, I always say whenever I have opportunity, I, I suggest that <clears throat> instead of having lawyers, we should ban lawyers from writing laws and only have poets and writers, creative writers, write it in such a way that people can actually comprehend it. And we should throw away most of the legal text because it's uh, very unuseful. The more we try to regulate, the less we regulate the big stakeholders, the more we regulate uh, the ordinary citizens. And that's a big problem. And you cannot put into law every possible uh, thing that can go wrong, if you know what I mean. You, You have to look at laws as agreement that is sort of a, <clears throat> you need to re- revisit on a regular basis, what is the spirit of this law? If you know what I mean, what was the intention with this? And, you know, to have all these lawyers just, you know, um, you know, make their living out of finding holes in the laws that actually the holes they discover go against the spirit of the law is absolutely undemocratic it is just it's been sort of undermining the rule of law in a sense now i don't respect laws at all after i've seen you know how they're written you know i didn't respect them before i got into parliament uh i sort of accidentally got into parliament it was i've never wanted to be a parliamentarian and i sort of just floated in there uh you know without noticing (laughs) because um you know, I, I, my aim when the crisis happened 
was to uh, just get all these different groups to work together on a collective mission so that there would be like, uh, we would use the shock and awe, uh, like Naomi Klein talked about in her book, you know, these crisis times for being able to uh, push through in the, the very narrow window some fundamental changes that would actually be benefit for all of the people instead of taking rights away from them like you did with the Patriot Act. Uh, and the thing is that usually those that have lots of money and lots of think tanks and all kinds of stuff, they are, you know, hammering out not only the ideas, but they actually have the legal packages ready for crises that they often help instigate, if you know what I mean. And so I just wanted to use the same methods. And, um, and so, you know, I, I was in all these different groups and you know, helping organize protests and, and stuff like that. And um, and I sort of accidentally also got into a position of the person that was supposed to be organizing this biggest protest so far, they declined to do it. So everybody, everybody knows that I, I work on impossible deadlines. So they asked me to do it in a day's advance. <laughs> 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 and so we had this big meeting we invited all the groups and we asked them, what are the three things that you feel uh, are fundamental in, you know, tilting the sort of the tables? And all of them wrote down these answers and there was just one thing they all agreed on, except maybe one group, which I think was the anarchists, was basically in order to facilitate the changes that we agree that is important to get done is to infiltrate parliament by creating a political moment. And since that was what everyone wanted to do, so I just sort of helped with that. Um, so we created this coalition of the grassroots movement uh, block that was supposed to run. And um, and then, you know, we had very little time. We had no money. Uh, and uh, But I was trying to get people... I was trying to run it on sort of the horizontal movement principles. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know... Um, and uh, that it would be sort of like uh, leaderless movements that would be sort of hit and run. We would just create a checklist of things that we felt we could achieve in the window of the crisis. Uh, what happened was that uh, I there are six constituencies in Iceland, and I could not get more than one woman to commit to lead one of the constituencies. So, so last minute, maybe a month before the elections, I agreed to lead one of the constituencies after trying to get so many different women to, to do it. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I did it, and then like I woke up one morning in Parliament. <laughs> now this, <laughs> well, one of the things that happened just, just after I got into Parliament, was that I, um, so we had like this big leak uh, from Wikileaks, uh, uh, which was like uh, one of the loan books from the big, the big bank that collapsed. Mm -hmm. And nobody really knew about Wikileaks back then. This is like 2009. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the bank manages to get like a prior restraint on our national broadcaster uh, on not publishing what they had prepared uh, from this leak. And uh, and the 
<laughs> the key anchor, uh, who is like sort of like this sort of super loved anchor in Iceland. He's been there forever and he's just like a part of our sort of cultural identity through media. He is clearly upset, but he doesn't say anything about that. So he basically says, we've been banned, we've been gagged uh, to, you know, uh, run the story that we had been preparing. You can, however, if you like, find the source at wikileaks.org and then they ran the URL. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on the main news. <laughs> and, and then Wikileaks were invited to come to Iceland uh, early 2010. Yeah. Uh, no, no, late. No, it was, no, no, it was, when was this? No, the, this was 2009. Uh, and <clears throat> late. Uh, and um, I'm in, invited to speak at this event because it sort of was like a geek event uh, for Digital Rights Society because I was the only geek in parliament. And uh, and I hear them talk about an idea that I find to be absolutely fascinating. So it was Julian Assange and Daniel Domscheit-Burke <clears throat> who were the guys behind Wikileaks back then. And um, they were talking about like that Iceland could become sort of a Switzerland of bits, a digital safe haven, uh, and so forth. And I just felt, wow, this is like, I really like this. I want to do this. And so <clears throat> I talked to them after the event. We're doing another event. Um, and I said, hey, why don't we just do this? I want to do it. <laughs> and uh, and we, the reason why I'm telling you this, because it really links directly into why I, uh, helped uh, co-found the, the Pirate Party in Iceland. So basically, um, uh, the idea was to look holistically at um, all laws that connect in regard to being able to publish forbidden knowledge, you know, stuff that, uh, you know, governments and corporations don't really want the general public to have access to about their, you know, uh, wrongdoings. And um, and so basically what we started to do was to find where are all the best laws in the world to ensure that you could, no matter what uh, unfortunate information you would have in regard to sort of um, uh, public stuff from whistleblowers uh, that or help media that is sort of banned in countries that is often the opposition media or bloggers from Tibet or whatnot to be able to, you know, have that data up no matter what, if you know what I mean. So that was the whole idea behind uh, the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative. And <clears throat> and then Wikileaks had sort of figured out ways to keep stuff online no matter what. Uh, by hosting different bits of their functions in different countries. And so we, because of the laws there, and so we sort of modeled our our sort of legal suggestions on that. And uh, and I put together the IMIN initiative, like the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative, which was basically a parliamentary, parliamentary resolution tasking the government to write out these different laws to make Iceland into a digital safe haven. Now, a lot of people 
do not understand the difference between a parliamentary resolution and a law. It's like a resolution is just an agreement by the parliament uh, tasking governments to do stuff. Now, because we're in a crisis, I somehow managed, and I was in the tiniest party, like my party had three MPs at the time. (laughs) Uh, I somehow convinced all the parties to put their name on this bill, or not the bill, the the resolution. And uh, I made sure to get prominent people that might become leaders one day on it. Uh, and uh, and I got it unanimously passed. We had like workshops in the parliament with people with like uh, hacktivists and and people from WikiLeaks, and it never happened before. And the reason why I'm telling this is because you were pondering how is it possible for a complete outsider, uh, somebody that really doesn't believe in the way we run our systems to go inside. Now, I'm also a bit of a... Um, a life hacker. I'm not like a computer hacker. I'm, I'm really not good with code. I used to be good with code, but I'm not anymore. And um, <clears throat> But I feel that, you know, in order to understand how the system works, you have to go inside it. You have to get an oversight because if you're just criticizing from outside, not really understand what you're criticizing, you are not going to be able to come up with any proper solutions that are actually an alternative. So there were so many different reasons why I decided to stay on. Like my first party, it was an obligation because it was a hit and run to dissolve it. After I realized that uh, like <clears throat> that I was the only person that understand geek, that understood technology in the context of human rights, uh, and uh, sort of just the basic stuff that we uh, usually have in our constitutions, you know, uh, like freedom of expression, privacy, and sort of stuff like that. Um, and I could see that some of the laws were being prepared, and I really wanted IME to become a reality, because I just I felt that some country had to lead the way for others and how to deal with laws that cross between the offline to the online, if you know what I mean. And so at an IMI board meeting, uh, I suggest that maybe, and I was, it was just sort of a joke. I suggest, why don't we just create a pirate party in Iceland? And we sort of decided to do that at this board meeting uh, to make sure that, you know, IMI would not get lost uh, and that there would be people in parliament that understood it and could push for it. However, uh, we <coughs> we got in, barely. We got like 5.1% of the vote, which you need five. <laughs> and for some bizarre reason and twist of fate, this tiny, tiny little party that was in the parliament Called the Pirate Party, you should have seen our policy platform, mm-hmm. what we ran with. <laughs> it was just like, it was basically new constitution, like, or, you know, ratify the new constitution that had already been uh, done by the uh, constitutional parliament uh, and voted for by the people of Iceland uh, positively um, <clears throat> to uh, decrim- decriminalize drugs and IMI. That's it. I mean, that was our platform that we got into Parliament for. <laughs> and uh, unbelievable. And just, you know, 
<clears throat> totally taking the piss out of everyone. Like some journalist asked me from the state broadcaster, uh, what should I title you? And I said, well, why don't you just call me captain? <laughs> <laughs> and the, it was a complete joke. And then they will all address me all the time. Like they address other leaders, like this is the leader of the conservative party and the captain of the pirate party. And <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> that's why I say it was, a, you know, it was an art installation because, you know, it's the only way I can describe it because I never took it seriously. Uh, I never cared if I didn't have this job, but I took seriously the trust that I had. Uh, and um, and so, like, w the unfortunate thing that happened to us is that we are there, this tiny party, and we start to go up in the polls. And we go up and up and up and up and until we are, like, first we just thought, okay, so th they must have just called, like, a pirate nest or something. This is no way. Like, we're 12%. What does this mean? And then we start to go up and up and up, and we are, like... Uh, every month we have more followers and more and more people are saying we are pirates and it's like okay and we were like for months in the poll scoring as the biggest biggest party in Iceland right and it went all the way up to 42 percent wow and it was just horrible <laughs> you know why that was horrible <laughs> it was just absolutely horrible because it mainstreamed the pirates. Oh, yeah. Because people actually started to believe in the bullshit. So they didn't understand the psychology behind why people were saying, I will vote pirates. So they started to compromise and started to believe that we had to have policy and everything and blah, blah, blah. So instead of just focusing on the stuff we're really good at, which has to do with, you know, civic rights, constitutional rights, and, uh, you know, uh, democracy in the digital era, um, they started to think, oh, we need to have a policy on healthcare and we need to have a policy on economy and blah, blah, blah. And we didn't have any basis to be able to do that because we did not do it properly, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <clears throat> Let alone did anyone understand anything about how the governance structure was really working. They didn't even know the names of the people that were running the ministries, okay? And so very similar things happened to the Pirate Party, like happened with Cirisia, uh, the Greek party that, you know, sort of got in, got all these uh, ministries, and they just could not, they didn't know anyone in the ministries. They had really highly competent people that just did not understand how to dismantle the power structures that were, you know, and they were run over just easily. Like, and that sort of happened to the pirates. And, uh, but funnily enough, uh, you know, and I left party politics, I really felt I don't like, I don't like people's ideas about power. People were like trying to inflict power on me that I never asked for, if you know what I mean. And uh, to a degree, which was the most disturbing thing when I realized that everything I said didn't matter what, people took it as authority. Now, that is the worst thing that can happen to an anarchist. I don't want to be an authoritarian. You know, if I wanted to be an authoritarian, I would have created a party with a leader. Mm 
mm-hmm, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But everyone was making me into some bloody leader, you know, and I didn't want, I wanted to be head of negotiations. I didn't care, who, you know, uh, who um, were doing other stuff. I mean, but somebody needed to have oversight and we, we delegated that uh, between us. And, um, and it was really, really sort of beautifully equal, uh, sort of, uh, where each individual actually got to shine when we were a few, uh, when we were only three. And even our only staff we had was sort of the fourth parliamentarian. Uh, we would have the same, <coughs> um, you, you know, have vote when we were voting about decisions and everything. So, uh, but so the uh, reason why I really decided just to leave it all behind, if you know what I mean, just just to say goodbye to even my own party. <laughs> uh, and just, I wanted to see what happens. I mean, I was eight years. I was really efficient. I got a massive international network of people that I've gotten to know and work with, both from parliamentarians and NGOs and activists and God knows what. And I, I could be a really good bridge between worlds. Uh, you know, uh, and... I want to see, would I be offered a job that suits my experience if I do not use my sort of uh, party, my old party or other sort of powerful people to get me a job, Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. that is suitable for my expertise. And lo and behold, nothing's happened. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yet, uh, you know, they created a future committee uh, the Prime Minister's Office created a future committee, uh, which is basically something that an idea of mine that I'd been pushing all the years I was in Parliament, uh, inspired by Finland. <clears throat> and um, they hired somebody from the Conservative Party to be the person, uh, the, the staff for the committee. Uh, even if the Prime Minister asked me for advice on how to present it to get the other parties involved. Uh, and it's just so interesting to me. I mean, it's like, I'm not going to crawl and ask for stuff. I mean, they know, they know, you know, I don't know how many of them have said to me, oh, you're the only parliamentarian that, you know, people abroad know about and so forth uh, from Iceland. And uh, I don't know what it is, but it's it's like such a waste uh, of, and this is how the system works. You know, if uh, you challenge them, while you're there, you will be left outside, you know, and that doesn't matter who it is, if it's the new parties or the old parties, uh, they just get absorbed into their own little hive mind uh, of maintaining power. And so it's the worst thing that can happen to anyone, doesn't matter who it is, is to either become a bloody celebrity, it's like the worst thing. Anybody who ever wants to be celebrity just you know kill the dream because it is a nightmare you know i have seen celebrities that are pampered like little babies i mean it's just horrible to watch it it's dehumanizing and they they enjoy it you know people that i actually respect uh they lose a lot of my respect when i see that uh and um like there's some sort of royalty it's just absurd and I've seen a lot of activists, a lot of like um, uh, people that have become 
very known very quickly. And, you know, if, if you have not done your internal work, if you have not done any internal work on improving yourself as a human being, you are not ready. And even if, like, I had done a lot of work, you know, I, I, I grew up with an alcoholic mother and, you know, I went and, of course, I married her. You know, I got myself a, an alcoholic husband as well, which uh, thankfully I divorced and left in Australia. But <laughs> but uh, it, that was really great because I, I, I discovered uh, the 12-step program for um, adult children of alcoholics or, you know, all anon. And uh, it really helped me. That's where I learned to do speeches, you know, just straight from the heart. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, just the mask off. Thank you very much. And just to realize that, um, you know, I am not better or worse than anybody else. I'm just, you know, in service, you know, just like you do coffee service at various 12-step programs. For me, I was just doing a 12-step program uh, with the nation. It was quite interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I studied all these little things. Like whenever I would start a speech, instead of saying, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> when uh, parliamentarians, we have like this weird tradition where it's live on public TV uh, twice a year, debates in the parliament, the most mind-numbingly boring event of the year. And, um, and usually would address uh, the nation, you know, in a formal way. And I started this trend saying like, dear nation and stuff like that. And I would say dear speaker instead of honorable speaker and stuff like that. And, uh, and it was just, uh, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the movement of anarcho clowns, uh, but that was sort of who I was in Parliament. Um, I just did not um, uh, conform to all the unwritten rules. I willfully rejected to see them, um, and so forth. And and one might ask, what did you achieve? You know, did I achieve anything? Uh, you know, has anything changed? And you know, deeply depressingly, I have to say, a lot of stuff has not changed. You know, I want to be the Robin Hood of power. I want to take the power uh, from the powerful and give it to people. You know, so that they could more take responsibility on determining what type of society they want to live in. But the people they don't really want that. They still are not ready for taking more responsibility in our societies. People do not understand that democracy is work. It is not something that we can just, you know, leave up to somebody else. You know, you just don't give the keys to your house to some teenagers and expect there's not going to be a party. And uh, and so it's like, uh, no, seriously, I mean, it's no, like, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and so we are like, you know, giving, giving the keys to our rights to people that, just do not they do not do not know how to um, uh, change the system so that they can actually execute what they promise nor are they interested most of them uh, there are you know a few people that go in they have you know these sort of stars in their eyes that they really want to be different then they go into the party's room and they come out like robots and they start the very first days on breaking the constitution by not following the conscious but the party lines and there is nothing about parties in i don't think in any constitution that i can think of uh so it's crazy stuff but uh, <clears throat> so 
one of the miracles that's happened, though, I don't know, ironically, is um, so when IME was uh, implemented, I put in the resolution that the uh, culture minister at the time would be in charge of making sure all the other laws in the different ministries would be written. And um, um, then guess who is prime minister today? It's the same, um, it's the same uh, person. So I asked for a meeting with her and uh, I um, uh, asked her if she would be willing to, you know, just really take this, you know, again and just really make sure that, you know, all the laws would be finished because many of them had been waiting in the ministries and nobody spoke for them. And she actually said yes. And so she created a steering group, uh, which I helped put together, uh, which wrote all the laws, or like this really brilliant lawyer that actually writes laws in human language. <laughs> so I, I can understand it. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and uh, so we have now in the parliament all the different Emmy laws, either being processed or, you know, in the queue. So we have like a beautiful whistleblowing act. We have removal of data, data retention. We have laws that make it easier for public servants to know when to speak and when to remain silent. And it's just, and, and also limiting the, uh, which is for me the most significant uh, is the law that um, stops IP hosts being, uh, you know, editors on all the content that's hosted there <laughs> uh, and or limiting the liability of IP hosts. And, <clears throat> and so somehow 10 years later, or yeah, 10 years later, or nine, we're seeing these laws becoming reality. And that leads me back to my final point about all this parliamentary stuff is that these laws should have been made in 2011. And then immediately, I would have liked to put forward a proposal on how we're going to deal with algorithms and AIs. Now, there are no—I mean, there are no laws that can deal with what we are faced with already. You know, uh, it's not enough. Like you know, Zuckerberg is calling for now. That's not enough. Breaking it up like Elizabeth Warren is suggesting, might help a little. But at the same time, we have seen the same laws applied to media and just did not, it just didn't work. And so um, I'm glad that there is discussion about it. But at the same time, I want to leave the listeners with something that I didn't know until I actually met the person. But do people in general, are they aware of that there is actually an news editor for news.google.com. I mean, it's actually a real person that's the editor. <laughs> uh, and there's a whole division uh, developing Google News. Mm -hmm. Because they always claim that they're just pushing links. Mm -hmm. So there is a real editor there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So and I mean, all the media knows about it. I was at one of their events and... Uh, you know, all the main sort of people from all the big mainstream media, plus a few sort of freaks like me, uh, were there. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just, 
a lot of the stuff in our world we're not aware of and the impact it has on us. And I cannot leave this conversation without bad-mouthing Google a little bit. Because, <laughs> I mean, of all the different evils of these sort of, like, um, uh, companies that are, you know, selling our souls, Google is the worst, you know. By far the worst. Absolutely horrifying how much power they have. And just think about that these companies, these mega companies, they're the ones putting most of the money into the development of AI and VRs. And VRs, if you've tried it, you know how it, what it does. It's just like, it can do incredible things and terrible things. Uh, you know, it's like, um, it's so hooked in with our neurology. Uh, it's just completely unexplored the impact that it will have on people. And it's being pushed onto the market really quickly. So, Well, I think it, it reminds me a bit of how these technologies, like even smartphones. I mean, I have a smartphone. I think most people listening probably have one and probably are using one to listen to this. <laughs> They're listening yeah. to this episode, right? They're probably like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, everybody has one. But I... I think about how whether it's, you know, an iPhone, whether it's Apple, whether it's something like, uh, you know, an Android or whatever, whatever company it's coming from, they have the same intention, which is, I think, to make actually this also goes for the apps, like whether it's Twitter or Facebook or any of these big companies, right? They have part of their design, they want to make it an addictive um experience so you're mm -hmm. you're drawn in constantly to using your iphone yeah. and interpreting reality through it right you're mm -hmm. you're like you talk about vr and i think about like i almost feel like when uh that game pokemon go remember that game pokemon go it's yeah, still yeah, it's still yeah, a yeah. thing yeah. i still see people playing it but i remember oh really yeah it's funny <laughs> I, like I'll, I'll like i remember when i was working at a <laughs> at a coffee shop when i worked there i uh I would see people walking around outside and they have their phones in front of them and they're looking and it like, it's really obvious they're playing like a, uh, it's not, it's not VR, but it's, um, augmented reality, yeah, right? Sort of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah There's a next step to it. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I think about how there are these things that are kind of presented to the public, like, like for instance, Google glass, like Google, Gla when Google released their Google glass, um, thing, they were like, I, I think they knew, I mean, I, I don't know, but I imagine they had some inten some intention to be like, we know this isn't going to be the final product. We know this isn't going to be the end goal. We're not trying that. We know this isn't even the best, but we want to put it mm -hmm. out there because we want people to kind of understand that we're presenting technologies now that are going to completely mold your day-to-day -day experience even more so than smartphones do. And they already are having deep neurological impacts on not only adults, but I think if we look at these generations that are growing up with them, there's a, there, there's real long-term impacts that I don't think we're really able to anticipate right now um, as a result yeah. of using these things. And, and it's not that I have anything inherently like, I, I, I think there's a lot of issues obviously with how these things are manufactured and, and who makes them, but I think technology itself can be used in all kinds of different it can go in all kinds of different directions if we choose to, if we are conscious of it. Um, but the problem is... Well, we use it as tools. Yeah, But, but yeah. they are now using us as their tools. So. Yeah, well, that reminds me, and, and, and I, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to interview um, Shoshana 
Zuboff, I think is her name. Oh, she's incredible. Yeah, yeah. in that book she wrote. I was wrote. supposed to be in a panel with her. Ah, uh, um, yeah. So, but I didn't meet her because she couldn't come. It was like a death in the family. But okay, uh, she is really smart. Yeah. She really understands. Uh, yeah, what, the, uh, the Age of uh, Surveillance Capitalism, I think is what it's called, yeah, the book yeah. that she wrote. But she did like another book before that, um, which I haven't finished, but uh, it's called The... In the age of smart machine, mm, mm-hmm. uh, in in the age of the smart machine, right. when is it uh, published? It's quite old. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's like um, it's like published. Uh, <laughs> let me see, eighty four. Okay, so a little while ago. Eighty four. It's like a big book. Uh, the future of work and power. Mm, yeah, uh, I really hope uh, you know she she gets on your show because she's really brilliant. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and I think we'll you're. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course you you know you you you'll just try see some Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, I. I uh, but I, oh, sorry to go. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, <laughs> I was just gonna say no. Uh, don't worry. About I was you. just gonna say though the thing that she presents in her book, and I haven't read it, but when I, I read there was a pretty in depth article that I think that she published in the Guardian, or somebody was reviewing her book in the Guardian, but it was a, it was going over how the dynamic has shifted because uh, you know initially people were focusing on the fact like okay you got Facebook and you've got Google and these major tech companies and they are they're 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 trying to gather all of our metadata like as as I think you talked about before we started about yeah. um you know people want to see your your metadata with Twitter and and use that for whatever prosecution or investigation or whatever they're doing into whistleblowing or whatever but but basically there i think people were a little behind the curve because everybody was looking at that and saying oh what they're doing is they're okay they're they're trying to sell us stuff you know by by gathering all of this data all of our patterns and behaviors that they see online and even in our real life now, they can then sell that to advertisers yeah. and marketing and all of that. And they can, you know, sell us stuff. And they're like, oh, that that seems like a, a good model for, for them. Not not good, but it works for them. But what she gets at is like, okay, that's the that's just a phase. They're now moving into this new phase which is they are now using that data to not only understand our patterns and our behavior, but then to direct it, to direct our attention, to direct our behavior, to mold entire societies to meet some sort of what, you know, what interest are they trying to put put forward by doing that? It's kind of... They're already doing it with flat earth. I mean, it's like if you can post that sort of stupid narrative... Uh Uh, I mean, I be, you know, I know that like a huge amount of people in the United States actually believe in creationism, <laughs> the dinosaurs, yeah. like people riding on the backs of dinosaurs and stuff, yep. <clears throat> which itself should be really worrying for people that see, you know, the, the United States as um, um, sort of a leading power in um, uh, science and development. <laughs> It's very worrying for me, you know, um, but... So they're already doing, like they're doing so many different experiments with, uh, you know, how they can shape people's minds. And it really started off with, you know, way, way back with one of the relatives of Freud uh, who helped sort of uh, shape the psychology behind advertisements. Is that you know, uh, Bernays? Uh, Is that his name? I don't remember. It was like, um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I became aware of it by watching one of uh, Adam Curtis' uh 
documentaries. I think it was The Power of Nightmares or something like that. Uh, and um, oh, I have to I have to point out uh, two things that are very important. Um, one is. I really, really want to recommend uh, documentaries uh, by a guy called uh, Aris Stefanov, something. It's like a, a Greek last name, and uh, I haven't heard it, and it's like really long. But he did a really, uh, he's brilliant. He, uh, he did first the documentary, and these are sort of like usually crowdfunded documentaries. The first one he did was called Deptocracy. Uh, which is brilliant. It really explains, you know, uh, you know how uh, nations get uh, sort of uh, the democracy become uh, really controlled by the debts that these nations have. Mm. And usually the IMF plays quite a big role in that. Uh, and that was sort of like inspired by what was happening in Greece and what happened in Ecuador and uh, Argentina and various other places. And I actually had some uh, tools to fix it. Uh, or at least attempt to it. He did another one that was very good and very, very important for people to see in the United States. Most most people that have seen these documentaries in Europe. Uh, it's called Fascism Inc. And it's about the origins uh, of fascism, you know, how it happened uh, and who were behind it. Because it will surprise a lot of people that will see, you know, how it sort of was allowed to become and the parallels that we're seeing today. Uh, these are all free documentaries, and you have to click on CC to get the, the captions. The newest one, which is oh so important that people will see, it's about Venezuela. And uh, I have been conflicted about what to believe, right? Because I met some of the parliamentarians uh, that sort of uh, were not allowed to do their work as parliamentarians, even if they were elected, that were from the opposition. And some of them were just in real danger and they were being stopped from being able to travel and so forth. I also saw the Venezuela of Hugo Chavez, where he was really trying to uh, improve the lives of people that had been deprived not only of, you know, uh, sort of physical stuff, but also cultural. And... Um, and, and, you know, I saw a lot of the stuff he was doing was very good. Of course, obviously, not so good for many. Uh, however, uh, this documentary sort of gives answers to all the questions I had, right? Uh, because it's obvious that the powers, I mean, because of what's there, you know, all, all the oil. <laughs> sure. There's massive interest in having power and to get back the... Uh, neocons into power and uh, it's called make the economy scream it's just come out and it is so good it is just amazing and so if there is anyone listening uh, please organize a screening uh, you know have a look at it try to make people see it before it's too late because uh, people have been all over in the discussions about Venezuela uh, it's much more complicated than most people understand. And he just did a brilliant work on this. Yeah, I think that's why it's really hard. Um, for me, I've done one episode where I interviewed, he's a, he's a, he's a leftist political commentator and he, he had visited Venezuela back in, I think, 2015. And, um, you know, and he talked about it and I think he did a great job, but I, I, 
I, I've come. To... There were some things that were sort of lacking. Yeah. You have to sort of like you have to acknowledge the wrongdoing that's been done since Maduro got into yes. power. Yes. Yep. You know because he is just like he he is he is not Hugo Chavez. Yeah. You know, that's true. just like uh, you know the guy that. Uh, and this is the problem when you have people that have been power for a long time uh, handing over the reins of power to some of their friends. I mean, it's it's crazy or family. It's just that's never the right way of exercising democracy. Uh, we saw it in Ecuador. We see it, um, you know, in Venezuela and various different parties, uh, the countries. But this one, I mean, I listened to the Venezuela episode, and I think that. Uh, it was good, uh, but it was still I was still not getting a lot of the answers uh, that I needed to fully understand, because uh, it's not a it's not black and white. Like uh, the world is always being painted in black and white, and it just is not useful uh, for anyone, and particularly like you know for the left to ignore the wrongdoing that this guy is doing. Just because it's just like listening to Glenn Greenwald. I mean, how in the world has he become? Did, did you know? Oh my God, there's another thing. <laughs> like breaking news the Snowden archives yeah. have been closed. Yeah, I've heard that. You the know. And who is shutting responsible? it down. Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. It's unbelievable that he cannot. I mean, it's like he goes against. You know, the board or they, the people, there's a really good article that uh, Barrett Brown put together that I highly recommend because this is huge and nobody cares. Of course, you know, people in power don't really care, <laughs> but it's like it just went totally under the radar. Yeah, that's very strange. You know, I wanted to ask about, because I know that we, when we corresponded a little bit um, leading up to this interview, we... Uh, I think the the last time we kind of texted each other, it was 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 when Chelsea Manning was thrown back into solitary confinement for refusing to yeah. um, participate in any sort of this sort of secret grand jury thing that's going on. Uh, you know, this investigation, the secret investigation, sealed indictment against WikiLeaks, right? And so she got yeah. thrown back into uh, solitary confinement. Apparently, just recently, she has been. She's not in solitary confinement any longer, but she's still being right, imprisoned. Yeah. Yes, so it's that's good. Obviously, I, I see that as enormously valuable. Um, solitary confinement is torture, so that needs to be stated very clearly. Yeah. Um, but it is absolutely absurd that I mean, it doesn't even seem legal from from any person. I, I don't think anyway. I, I often I don't know anymore because <laughs> there's all of these you know, executive orders that are signed or, you know, like the NDAA or all these different things that are pushed through in Congress or right. by the, or just by the executive branch in the United States. And it's like, I was actually part of that, uh, that, um, famous, um, uh, you know, NDAA lawsuit that we won, mm, uh, mm -hmm. in the first run with Chris Hatches. Yeah, um, yeah. and then it was sort of thrown out because of technicality, yeah. Yeah, a constitutional breach. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable it is uh, yeah but yeah i mean it's like and that's now i'm glad you mentioned it because everybody's forgotten about it yeah if you know what i mean yeah. it's just not something that people really think about until they get the uh you know the paramilitaries uh you know because of you know they use every opportunity they are just militarize the police uh, in your country but yeah in regard to chelsea i mean uh 
I think it's so important what he's doing to challenge the grand jury thing. I mean, I suspect that this grand jury is the same grand jury that's dealing with my case uh, and the case of just about everyone that was involved with WikiLeaks when we were uh, publishing uh, Collateral Murder and the cables and all that. And I want it in public, thank you very much. There is nothing in it that justifies the secrecy about it. Nothing, you know. And um, and so what they've done to her is just wow. appalling. It's unbelievable. And they're doing it to another woman, reality winner. Uh, she is like, what they're doing to her is just also appalling. And it's just like, how can the United States make that you know just make themselves feel that they can be taken seriously when the prison system and justice system is so fucked up it's just unbelievable yeah yeah i, I agree. mean it's like the whole prison i mean i would love to do uh, to hear oh after you did an episode on the prison system it's just like it's just unbelievable it's just painful to watch it because in most civilized countries you know, you you know, we complain about the prison system here, and and the longest you can serve is sixteen years. That is usually reduced to you know eight for murder. You know, <clears throat> and um, what is lacking is reform. I mean, this should be reform, not uh, you know that you are held back into society instead of the ping pong ping pong thing. You know, inside prison, outside prison. But when I heard that you you cannot, you'd have to go in prison if you don't have enough money to bail yourself out, you know, if you're poor. And, and, and the way they keep people like cattle, you know, and give them disgusting sandwiches yeah. that are slushy and warm. <laughs> no, I'm just saying it's just like in the how they degrade it's a degra- people. It's a it's totally just- degrading uh, thing. Absolutely. You know, my very, very uh, minimal uh, interaction with the, the so-called justice system or the, the, the legal system in the United States was back in my early 20s and I was doing a bunch of kind of stupid, you know, irresponsible things and I got, you know, I got arrested once and thrown in a holding cell and all this dumb shit, right? Just being, just being an idiot. Yeah, before, yeah, me too. before I figured me too. it out, yeah, before yeah, I figured yeah. out what I wanted to do, I felt really lost, confused, <laughs> and angry, and so I just was irresponsible and did dumb shit. Anyway, the point is, is that when I was going through the whole system, I went to court, and going through that, and it just became incredibly apparent that all it is is like it's like a tax. It's not, it's not formal. It's not like an actual tax. Obviously we all get taxed here, um, regardless of your criminality, but it's like an extra thing that the state does on the city and County and state and federal level to, to generate money. Like that's, that's what it all, it really, yeah, a yeah. lot of times what it comes down to oh, yeah, no. in the poorest yeah. people, the poorest people in my community, I would see them and they get trotted up for really dumb shit. Like, Oh, we caught you stealing a bottle of water okay, you got to pay this $400 fine. And it's like, what is happening? Like, you know, obviously these people did kind of stupid or irresponsible things, but the way that I saw the whole thing play out and how I was kind of in that for a little while, um, I, I just saw a system that was incredibly cruel and cold yeah. and completely 
it, it you know it's just it's just like looking at the mentality that the people had about how you're supposed to punish people and that's supposed to fix crime and it just totally goes up against what we know about how people work and how crime actually exists and you know what i mean it's like there's so much information now there's really no excuse to believe that but by like ratcheting up the punishment on people like like this whole thing like like we see now with in the united states this this horrible thing that's now pr- happening with immigration you've got trump oh, you know with detention centers and all this that that whole mentality which is like if we separate children from their parents as they cross the border into the United States, if we separate them, that, that'll, that'll deter people from crossing the border into the United States. Absolutely, 100% untrue. That is not how it works. And yet, they still believe, like, oh, we're the crueler we are to these people, the more likely they are to, to not enter the United States or, or whatever it is, right? And it's just... Yeah, they have clearly no idea from what these people are fleeing. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like... And usually because of intervention and meddling with their political system, uh, you know, in many of these countries that are in dire straits right now and just completely run by different gangs. Uh, and, um, and I mean, it's just so sad because, like, I've, I've been lucky enough to go a little bit to Latin America as a poet. And, um, and you know, the people there are just so incredible. They're just so incredibly gentle, uh, you know, deep, uh, yet at the same time doing like Dalai Lama, you know, laughing in the face of tragedy. Uh, And what some of the people that are fleeing have gone through, there is is no other way. I mean, there is just, uh, that's the only way out they see. Uh, and, um, And it's not like, the biggest problem is because of that. The biggest problem is because uh, the reason why there are so many people that cross over illegally is because there is a need for cheap labor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there is a competition now between those that need cheap labor, slave labor, and the prisons that are also, you know, the new form of uh, slavery. Uh, you know, working for many of the big brands are prisoners that don't get paid for what they do. You know, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I feel like sometimes these 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 efforts, like when we see with Trump doing that, what do they call it? Uh, like like trial balloons. I think someone framed it that way, um, which is to say, by putting this out there, they know that the public's going to reject it or that there's going to be a backlash at least, right? There's going to be a segment of the population that'll support it, of course, but there's always going to be a segment, a larger segment, I would say, that are appalled by seeing that, right? They're like, oh God, we can't do that. And then they back off and say, okay, yeah, that's that's illegal or that's bad or whatever. But I feel like that's just a way to prepare people, prepare society for what they're going to maybe have to do in the future. And, and you know, talking about say climate change or any of the major ecological global crises that are converging right now people are going to be moving across borders far more than they have in the past because of these crises and i feel like the the maybe trump isn't even i'm not blaming him specifically he's a he's a tool but he is he is a part of a thing that's trying to and i think this is also happening as you mentioned italy i know italy has their own kind of way of approaching this too i think that what people these governments are doing is they're like let's see what people will tolerate how far can we dehumanize these people it's the same with all these yeah i mean we've seen it with so many different things they did this with 
smokers and then they move into the vaping and you know it's like uh, uh, you know when it becomes tolerated that you can sort of make one group in society like leopards if you know what I mean and uh, instead of helping them why aren't there free clinics to help people stop smoking? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, if that's the root of all evil, uh, you know, I'm just saying that, like, why is alcohol tolerated, for example? I mean, far more damage in society of that. Um, and it's just, you know, which snack is going to be the next group that they get away uh, by making into leopards? I mean, obviously, they are now taking whole... Uh, groups of people and demonizing them, uh, you know, from different countries, you know, people that don't have the right color of skin. They, of course, did massive experiments with uh, the uh, people of color in the United States. But before that, they did that to the native uh, population. And what they done to the first people in the in the United States is... A horror story that you know i i really don't understand why you know there is not more discussion about that uh and it's just like you know i think one of the most beautiful things i saw uh in the united states for a long time was the keystone protest until all the violence against them uh, started but just this gathering of people and just the healing that was taking place as well between people uh, like uh, veterans and uh, uh, first people and so forth. I mean, and, and just all these young people getting empowered from communities that are like third world communities. Um, that was, and I really hope that that is going to carry on because, uh, you know, first people are not holy people. They, you know, it's really bothers me as well. Uh, when we think we're going to find all the solutions to our problems through native tribes. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're going to have to learn from one another. There is a lot to learn from people that are deeply connected with nature. Uh, but there's also something they can learn from us, and we can all go together into the future. Because the more we segregate, and I feel that this is a trend that's happening very much now, that people are really compartmentalizing themselves. Like, I am this, and I am right, and I am that, and I am right. I'm a woman, and this is my reality. Uh, I am, uh, you know, queer, and this is my reality. And the realities of, uh, you know, us, as humanities, need to merge. You know, we cannot allow ourselves to become so segregated. And it's always getting smaller and smaller. The boxes are smaller and smaller. And I completely refuse to to put myself in a box like that. You know, I, I will rebel against it. You know, I rebel against some of these sort of like, um, I, I, I rebel, you know, all of a sudden me, who's always been on the fringe, I am all of a sudden so normal. <laughs> 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 I'm so normal. Yeah. You know, I am like, uh, you know, uh, sort of like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so weird, you know, it's because, you know, people are screaming at one another from all these different boxes. Uh, and instead of like us coming together as humanity to deal with these crises that we are faced with, uh, and who does that serve? 
that we are all having arguments about how somebody expresses themselves slightly flawed. I mean, uh, it's just we really need to get offline uh, and start to see one another face to face. And uh, we need to start to talk together and communicate together in our communities. We need to understand that nothing is going to change unless we know our neighbor. If we do not know the name of the people living in the house that we live in, how are we going to change society? You know, if we are not willing to help our neighbor, you know, with his fire, is that fire not going to spread to our home? You know? And so, you know, even, you know, I used to live on the Bible Belt, you know, uh, <laughs> in the United States. Really? Uh, and yeah, yeah. I, like each year in my life is like seven years for others. It's just really crazy uh, how many things I've done. Uh, and uh, I still feel, though, always like I'm not doing enough. <laughs> It's just like this condition I have, but um, and um, and so I understand where a lot of people. I mean, I lived in West Virginia for a brief period of time back in '91. Uh, my my then father-in-law was from there, and um, that was the state that everybody just forgot about after the coal mining stopped. Right, way back then, it was just a deeply depressed state, and there was very little hope for people. And so there is a reason why it's so easy to tell people that have already lost everything and lost all hope for any type of, you know, prosperous future. And with the opioid crisis as well, creeping into all these different states, uh, these are, you know, states that are in deep crisis. And you see it is exactly the same people everywhere uh, that are sort of like where you see this sort of far right gaining ground it's exactly the same people but there is another way i mean like what happened in iceland with the pirate party is that we became that force you know for a while where you know instead of people there there were no sort of um there was no sort of uh opportunity for the old right in iceland to rise because we had the pirate party because we were rebelling against things and addressing the things that people felt uh, were important to them. And, and so, I mean, it doesn't mean, even if we're seeing this trend all over, that this is the trend that's going to overtake everywhere. That's just not true. That is a reality a lot of people want to lead us to believe in, so become hopeless. But, you know, Buckmaster Fuller who was a brilliant, brilliant man, way ahead of his time, and a brilliant poet as well, by the way, uh, he said, if the system that you're running isn't working, do not try to fix it. Make another system that you can then replace the one that doesn't work. I want everyone that really cares about the future to create groups, their own think tanks, to find ways forward, to find solutions together. And really sort of read brilliant uh, uh, anarchist um, uh, whom actually, like a lot of the ideology behind the, the Kurdistan Rojava, uh, you know, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. system was created, uh, you know, like a lot of these ideas actually came from an old uh, 
American uh, anarchist. Uh, Bookchin, <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, he has, it's just so important to read stuff and then pick out of it ideas because, like, no one, not anyone, there is not a person on this planet that has all the answers alone. We are going to have to find these answers together, you know. And the experimentations we've done in Iceland with democracy, some of them failed and some worked and some worked for a brief period of time. Now, you have a proper, proper crisis in so many different parts of the world. And that is just the best time to be alive. Because that means if you use it to utilize more responsibility and more power to the people uh, based on factual information, it's all doable. It is all possible. And it's not too late. It is very important to remember that it is not too late yet. But we need to start today. There is not one day too soon to start. Just little things. Yes, you know. yes. Yeah, I, so, I agree with you. And, and I wanted to ask another question, which is, we talked a bit about Chelsea Manning and her situation, but um, I find it... I want to say something, which is, you know, the, the, the interesting thing I was thinking about, which is... Back when that that video that you helped produce and and release, Collateral Murder, um, and uh, back when I was in my early twenties, again, I I was in a college class. I was in a government college class, and we were given this assignment: like, okay, you can do a presentation on any current event that's happening right now, any big thing you want to talk about. And I'm like, I want to do it on WikiLeaks because it's like a big deal, right? I don't think people in my class really understood the implications of what was happening. So I presented that video to a group of people in my class. Um, oh, wow. And, and <laughs> I don't think anybody ever saw anything like that. I'm like, so this is what the occupation looks like, right? This is what the occupation in Iraq looks like. And I explained WikiLeaks in its background. I didn't know about you at the time. Um, and then... No, I mean, uh, it's, yeah. I mean, I was just being good good activists and just helping out yeah, with of course. something I felt was important. Yeah. yeah, and I know not long after that video and, and everything that uh, apparently Chelsea Manning had helped uh, leak, uh, that all that information, once that, once that reached the public consciousness, it wasn't very long after that you separated, you weren't associated with WikiLeaks any longer. Um, and now we're in this situation where we're seeing Assange has been in the Ecuadorian embassy since 2012. There was apparently the past couple of days has been rather tense. There's been, you know, there was a leak that came out from a trusted uh, official apparently in the Ecuadorian embassy that's close to Assange that was saying, hey, they want to get him out of here soon within a matter of days. Yeah, in the next hour. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, and then just a few hours after they pushed that, there was another, uh, you know, news. And, and I, I keep telling him, look, uh, or not him, because I don't talk to him, um, that it's so important that, you know, do not cry wolf, because if you do, when you really need help, it's not going to be there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, but the thing is that, you know, I think that, I mean, uh, why in the world, with the situation as it is, is he, is he, has he the need to carry on pushing the buttons of Lenin? And the irony is, and I remember many people don't remember 
remember this, but he helped elect this guy. He went on a crusade against the other one because he had said, we're going to, you know, um, kick him out of the embassy. Uh, and I think, um, you know, with his situation, I mean, it's like he never did what I, and one of the reasons I left is that I, when the thing was happening in Sweden, I was actually talking with him when it was happening and when the news broke uh, about these girls and, uh, and then knowing him, I knew what they were saying was accurate, right? Uh, and I even talked with one of them later on, uh, just to hear her story. And I knew it was right. Uh, but even if I know it and a lot of people don't believe that he did it, uh, or do not define sticking a penis, unprotected penis into somebody without their permission is rape, uh, when they're sleeping. Um, even if he was innocent of this, the fact that he's never gone to court that he never did that is so damaging for Wikileaks. And I really asked him, can you please step down as a spokesperson and deal with this shit? And just appoint anybody, Daniel or Kristen or anybody that's boring enough that they do not become the story. <laughs> you know, uh, with you know full respect, they're not boring, but they do not have the same charisma as he has, if you know what I mean. So he automatically becomes the story, but not the leak. And that's not very good for any news organization where the anchor is constantly the story, but not the story he's telling. He did, refused to do that. And then um, he had the very, very best lawyers represent him when it came to the extradition thing, you know, and uh, the extradition was not to the United States, it was to Sweden. So if he would have just gone to Sweden instead of going into the embassy, it would have been so difficult to extradite him before he would go to trial, you know. And what is this thing? What? Why doesn't he want to go to trial? You know, it's better to go to trial than to, you know, uh, gets being stuck in you know the situation in the embassy. I mean, which is obviously, I mean, it's difficult, and I I sympathize with that. This has been a long time. It's trying, and what they're doing now is really, you know, <laughs> is really bad. It's like a parent trying to be really giving their teenager uh, very strict conditions for that teenager to carry on living at home. If you know what I mean, it's just really reminds me of that. Just like, you know, uh, the breakup he had with Daniel, uh, who had a very significant role and the other people had left around the time that I left, like the architect and, and various others. I mean, the architect is the one that created the submission system. And then there was no submission system for years. For years, there was no submission system to WikiLeaks, which was very problematic uh, because obviously they could not get then you know, digital submissions in a safe way. And so how is WikiLeaks, how have they been getting their leaks? Uh, you know, that's a question that I find to be quite important. Another thing is, obviously, I know most of the people that have been involved with WikiLeaks, even people way after I was. And uh, every time I meet someone, there is a new emergency, that there is something 
you know, some police were spotted here and, you know, it's imminent that he's going to be extradited or whatnot. Uh, or kicked out of the embassy or the, the UK police going to storm a sovereign embassy, which is like crazy if that would happen. But um, thankfully, there are people that are carrying on with the mission of WikiLeaks because what WikiLeaks stood for is much bigger than any individual. This was about a movement of people, people that actually ended up going to prison, defending and fighting for WikiLeaks, people like Barrett Brown, People like Jeremy Hammond, who is still in prison, and, and Chelsea Manning, and various other people that have had hardship in their lives because of, uh, you know, fighting for what WikiLeaks stood for. And let's not forget them. L let's not forget the sacrifices that these people made for the transparency movement. And there are people now working on, like there is a new project that uh, Emma Best uh, is running, which looks very promising, uh, which is basically publishing the raw material uh, that often didn't find any home in cyber. Uh, Krypton has been around forever, which was sort of like the first idea for WikiLeaks to base itself on. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. The hard thing is to be able to navigate it, and that's why it is so depressing that they closed down the Snowden archives and did not make the Snowden archives more publicly known so more journalists could actually use it, if you know what yeah. I mean. Uh, and so... Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to, I wanted to comment on how, you know, this seeing all this play out over years, and I know, of course, you're so much closer to it than I am, but... I just wanted to comment on, you know, it's 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 disheartening not to not to not give credit to those that have sacrificed so much. I don't want to say that about them. They've the absolutely heroic and courageous acts of Chelsea Manning and and everyone else is I need to I need to state that that's so valuable and important and inspiring. Mm -hmm. But it's like to see it all come back almost full circle where it's like there are still consequences playing out for that leak that happened back in 2010 or whatever it was, right? I mean, it's yeah, like, it's, yeah, 2010. it's so, um, but that's how they want to want us to feel. Yeah, exactly. So I think that, you know, I don't, I don't give a shit, you know, what they're trying to do. I mean, they're not going to instill fear in me, you know, uh, if, if they want to arrest me, yeah, come and get me because like, uh, I have done nothing wrong. And so just be my guest. Uh, and uh, I think it is very important that people do have the courage to do like what Chelsea is doing now. I mean, it's like uh, to take the risk of actually being put again into torture for a torture victim. It, it's, it's so incredibly brave. I don't, I don't think people understand. And it's not to protect anyone that he's refusing to not go uh, to the grand jury. Uh, and, and frankly, this I had never heard of this grand jury thing until, you know, uh, I was possibly a subject of one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I just didn't know that, you know, in a democratic society, you would have something like this. It's just very, you know, I don't know, Middle Ages kind of thing, like Inquisition. <laughs> and um, And so I think that, you know, even if everything is evolving and changing and, and so forth. And there has been 
despite the fact, you know, how slowly everything is going, like, I never forget, uh, you know, the most significant sort of layer on all of this was Snowden. Because what Snowden did, because he's like really likable, if you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, he's so, uh, his language is so good. The way he speaks, he's so clear. And he's just like, it's like this grand chess master type, yes, if you know what yes. I mean. And, um, and so what he managed to do was to get this stuff, even if like with the big leaks from WikiLeaks, he got the discussion about privacy into the mainstream. Nobody has achieved that before. And it's so important that we carry on with, you know, uh, the stuff that he gave us, the information, and also with the stuff that came out of Cambridge Analytica and the whistleblowers around that and, you know, what's happening around Brexit and, you know, and so forth, that, you know, these people are giving us the gift of information. It is a gift. And it's, you know, because of the bravery of these people before, and it started with, you know, um, way, way before, you know, most of us were, you know, born, yeah. you know, that you would have whistleblowers that would risk everything. And do you know why they risk everything? It's not because there are some punk-ass anarchists. It's because they actually believe in the system. You know, they believe in the system, and when they see the system isn't working the way it should to protect the citizens, or if it's, you know, responsible for heinous crimes uh, that are hidden from the public uh, opinion, then they blow the whistle. Just think about all the people that helped Jews uh, escape the Holocaust. You know, these people, of course, demonized you know, of course they would be demonized. You know, so whenever you want to demonize a whistleblower, just think about that, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I think that is, you know, and the consequence of what they did is that many brilliant minds and people, you know, survived, you know, a horrible crime against humanity. And we see this still happening all over the world. It, it's maybe not in the mainstream media, but there is a lot of people risking everything for, you know, the the whole. And these people, instead of demonizing them and, and uh, going on a righteous horse, these people, more than anything, to blow the whistle, it is the single toughest thing anybody can do, you know, if it is a significant uh, whistleblowing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Are you feeling okay? <laughs> Yeah, just like uh, we're having like the spring in Iceland, which means snow one day, sleet, and then uh, a sort of fake feeling of uh, the spring is here, which means you get a little bit of sunshine, you believe it's <laughs> summer, you go outside and you get cold. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that here too, where I'm at. Yeah. Where are you at? Um, I live in uh, Idaho. Southern Idaho. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I love how I can tell somebody... Yeah, I driven through. I'm, I love that I can tell like, somebody oh. from another part of the world where <laughs> I'm at, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know where that's at, exactly. <laughs> and then I went to California last year in the summer, and I was talking to some, like, taxi drivers, and they're like, where are you from? Like, Idaho. 
where's that again? <laughs> it's like, it's like right over there. It's like a couple, it's not that far. It's like, yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, I, I took like a massive road trip when I lived uh, <clears throat> in the US back in 91. And so I, I got to, to experience a lot of states and really realized that this is not one country. This is a lot of different countries. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, yeah, it's definitely. like this would be the United Countries of America. It's of so America. vast. I mean, it's a huge <laughs> continent. And, and yeah, there's so many different things going on all over. It's like, yeah, traveling from, it's like, it's, they're, all, they're like very different cultures, you know, it's, it's very strange. Yeah. It's very strange. And, and this is totally off topic, but it, it rem- makes me think yeah. about <laughs> makes me think about the Civil War because yeah. there's still this like long-standing, obviously a feud, but it's like the South has always been defined as a different, completely different thing than the North, and that's I think kind of the foundational. It's not. It obviously was about human rights and slavery and the economy and industrialization and all of these really complicated issues, but I think underlying all of that was just completely different cultures that somehow managed to exist within one nation state. And then they had to figure out how to reconcile that and it never could be reconciled. And so, yeah, um, totally off topic. No, I mean, it's like, it's very similar. <laughs> like if you look like there's one thing that is important to remember, if you do not know your roots and history, you are indeed lost, Yes, you know, and you, you do not have a compre- comprehensive idea about, uh, how to solve anything in in the day in the moment, and um, and it, it is you have to look at the formation, how all of this was created, what led to the wars and and, and the power stru- struggles way back uh, in order to find answers to how to deal with uh, you know the coming problems, um, and uh, so yeah, it's important for people to understand their history and their roots. Another brilliant thing that uh, the people did to the United States that uh, are in power is to make people, because like in the United States, it is very common if you're working for a corporation, they're constantly moving you, you know, you're constantly moving. So you don't have any roots, you don't have any community, you know, because communities organize. It's the nature of communities organize. Yes, definitely. (laughs) And so that's why I'm so eminent about you know why i feel so important that we create communities you can create communities in your physical world and of course we are seeing a lot of communities being created online Uh, but it is important to know that uh, infiltration is so much easier when you do not see the person if you know what i mean yeah absolutely yeah physical reality uh, is uh, underrated (laughs) it is i mean you know i even though um you know, I don't know why I've had such a bizarre life, but uh, when I was organizing this uh, international protest camp in Iceland, uh, I found out just a few years ago that one of the guy that was really trying to push us into becoming more hardcore, he actually turned out to be um, uh, a spy from the <laughs> British police, and he was outed, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, and this whole thing about the undercover spies that the British cops uh, put into all types of civil rights groups. Yeah. And uh, the funny part is, um, was that and his name is uh, Mark Kennedy. Uh, he 
um, I was making a book, like I, I was collecting stories from all the different activists, and uh, I wanted to make a little sort of book. Never happened because I didn't get enough material. But a lot of people wrote stories, and he offered to write about guess what? Police brutality. <laughs> and he was a police himself. <laughs> oh, wow. the fuck with. Uh, and I mean, he. That's what he did was state rape. I mean, he was forming relationship, and they do this. It was a really good book by the, the Guardian about these uh, uh, anonymous uh, agents, uh, and they did not only come into the groups to be silent observers. I mean, this guy was trying to get us to hook up with the Black Brigade in uh, Athens uh, to make us more, and I wonder on whose orders we've never been able to figure out the Atlantic police pretend uh, or claim that they didn't know he was here, but there's no way that an agent from another country could come into Iceland and infiltrate an environmental group. Uh, because the, the, back then environmental groups were considered the, the next terrorists. You know, we were branded as uh, eco-terrorists. And so um, I didn't, I didn't meet him in person because uh, I was sort of the spokesperson in the city. Uh, but, um, you know, all the people that I know that they didn't see through him, it must really hurt and erode uh, trust. And that's one of the reasons they do this, uh, is that they infiltrate to completely make everyone super paranoid uh, that you can't trust anyone. Um, and it's the hardest thing to deal with, I think. Um but then again, you know, uh, it's also important not to uh, to get too caught up in the games and just if you feel that you're doing something right, just to do it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I agree. Um, it is really a really difficult time to navigate. You know, especially when you're putting your heart and soul into something, and it could be um, undermined in so many different ways. And I. I I think that that's probably a pretty good idea within these organizations. I'm sure there's organizations that already do this, but to figure out a way to spot these things, you know, to sort of have a vetting process that's not so severe as to just, you know, to, um, to scare people away, I guess, from activism or scare them away from joining the group, but also stringent enough that you can kind of sense, oh, this person has ulterior motives. They're gonna. They're trying to do something yeah, here. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but it is really hard because they're trained in. <laughs> if yeah, you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. So the person that's not trained, they might be the ones that don't get in. If you know. Yeah. The persons that are just you know, get uh, get the wrong answers because they're not trained. What they would do is that they would take. And this is really disgusting. They they would actually take <clears throat> the names of that people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it like in some some sort of crime? sort of movie or something like thriller yeah <laughs> uh, and now they obviously since that was outed they're gonna they're using different methods but it's just um uh really creepy um i guess you know the danger is there and i think there's always going to be some people there that are you know you don't know if are with pure intentions or not um yeah yeah, these are it's difficult to to know what to do sometimes, but I think 
I, I trust or I have some sort of, uh, sounds weird to say this, but I have a faith that there are going to be spaces that exist that allow people to really do important work. You know, it, sure, there's going to be obstacles, but I I trust, I hope anyway, that that's possible. And I don't want it to be represented as a false hope. I don't want it to be like an overly optimistic outlook. You know, I don't want it to be like that. I just want it to be understood that like this work is worth doing. I've had people comment or contact me who are, you know, overwhelmed, understandably, by what's happening yeah. in the world right now on multiple fronts. And they're like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I don't know what to do either, but I'm trying to do the best I can to navigate this. And the more people that come together to try to kind of crowdsource this, so to speak, or sort of bring all these different yeah. perspectives and skills and mindsets and, and all of that and passions together, I, I think something can come out of that. Um, hopefully that's really fruitful and beautiful. I mean, that's... that's Absolutely. And, and there are so many different platforms that have been tried uh, and been very successful in this way. Uh, you know, deliberate debating about issues is a really good method where you have like these sort of uh, randomly selected groups of people coming together to talk uh, about, you know, that difficult issues like abortion. They did this in Ireland and uh, it ended up like going for a vote in the parliament. And the reason why it was adopted was the uh, same applied to same-sex uh, marriage was because it'd been so much discussion among normal people uh, about it because of the assemblies, you know, because, <clears throat> and I think instead of having jury duty where you're going and like, you know, you have the lives of somebody in your hand, why aren't there like jury duties uh, in the sense of like, uh, you know, representatives where you're randomly selected to serve your community? You know, that means that everyone is sort of, you know, has to be a little bit more aware and engaged because they might be randomly selected to do stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that means also you do not only get the alpha people into these positions, you know. Uh, and uh, I have seen there is like this uh, thing in, the, in Britain called the Sortition Institute, and uh, it's really interesting, a lot of the findings, uh, and I was in the Scottish Parliament, um, I don't know, a year ago or something. Uh, they always have like this um, uh, amazing yearly event uh, where it's sort of like uh, lots of discussions about a variety of uh, different methods of running societies uh, and just bring politics and the parliament closer to the people. And uh, I was in like a panel with uh, two other people, three other people where we were basically talking about, you know, how representatives uh, are redundant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the beautiful thing is that like, uh, like you have House of Senators and House of uh, uh, Representatives <clears throat> uh, in the U.S., so how about instead of having the senators, you would have like, you know, you would have the lower house with the sort of the classic parliamentarians. And then the next house would be the house of commoners. You know, people that are randomly selected with no interest except to serve for a short period of time. 
and they could be sort of like uh, they could have access to all these stuff, all this information, and they could be the conscience. Uh, because like if it's just the same, same old, you know, two heads always pretending they are disagreeing. You often have no idea who is from what party, to be honest. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so why not? I mean, there's lots of different ways. There's endless. It's just people need to sit down and, and come down with uh, ideas about um, what they feel passionate about as a collective to push forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I agree with what you're saying and. Yeah, and, and also I, I remember there was this young guy that, uh, you know, who called in, uh, who was feeling a little bit sort of uh, hopeless uh, that you played before one of your episodes. And, you know, I just want to say to him and everyone else that's sort of feeling similarly because I really understand it, you know, um, that... Um, it's not too late. There's so much we can do. And they're like, just think about one thing, which, you know, I think is a really good idea, which is basically, so let's imagine that there is war. There is war coming to the United States or Iceland. What do we do? We just disconnect all the system and we prepare, we change our factories so they instead of making tractors, they are making weapons and people are willing to accept rations and all kinds of stuff. Now, do we want the elite to decide how this is going to be implemented? You know, because you have to imagine that every country is now at war with itself, you know, with nature, our mother, you know. And so if it's possible to do it in war, then it is possible to do it now in these crises. But we need to apply our minds and our creative sort of heart into and implement ideas on how would we, if we had a clean slate, how would we structure our societies? Not inserted into the current system, but if we had a totally clean slate, how would we deal with the situation at hand? And I think that's challenging, but oh my God, it is so much simpler than what we're dealing with now. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it does not have to mean that, you know, everyone is on curfew. You know, we can have rich, amazing lives. We don't have to work nine to five. It is complete bollocks, complete bollocks. Uh, You know, we can have, there's already so much that we have. Uh, access to but it's just not distributed fairly Uh, and so there are endless ways and there is just you know uh, like Dalai Lama said never give up no matter what is going on around you develop the heart instead of the mind never give up so it's just you know this is not the time to give up there's still lots to do uh, just don't join the flat earther society. <laughs> <laughs> That's the takeaway I think from all this is just don't, don't become a flat earther. You're you're set. <laughs> yes. Or you know any other cult. I mean, just beware of the cults. You know, cults are really creepy. Uh, you yes. know, uh, and it's so easy to make them. So you know, 
Just be your own own little girl. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, I just I really appreciate this discussion. Um, I think we covered pretty much everything I wanted to go over and more. I mean, way more than I could have anticipated. Um, I wanted to ask if there was anything you wanted to direct people towards. I know there's your website. There's your Twitter. I know you're on Twitter. Um, any other things that you want to point people towards? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just like uh, a vehicle myself for, you know, directing people to different directions. Uh, you know, I am about, I started to write a book. Uh, I have, though not gotten, I had like a massive burnout after my parliamentary stuff. So I have just been sort of, you know, inventing a new battery into me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it's like solar panel battery and there's been no sun oh, in no. Iceland for a long time. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I think, you know, if if I were to direct people anywhere, it's just, you know, um, uh, you know, into them, like, you know, everyone has like a really strong moral compass. And just don't let, you know, the external world or, you know, the online world delude your moral sensibility and the possibility for, you know, developing the compassionate heart for others. And if there is anything, if if people want to find other people that are doing stuff that are important, look for the people that are willing to fight for the rights of others. Stay away from the people that are fighting for their own rights, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like just fighting for themselves. Yeah. If you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, I do. Uh, and develop that de ability. I mean, it's like if you see something that's wrong, you know, don't wait for somebody else to fix it. Fix it. There are billions and billions and billions of ideas out there, and they're all sort of coming together. And just, you know, if something looks too good to be true, stay away from it. Uh, or if something feels wrong, stay away from it. Uh, and just, you know, let your heart guide you. Because, you know, and, and your connection with Earth. Connect with Earth. That is very important. Connect with Earth in a deep way. Just go on your belly on some, you know, grass or moss and just feel her. And, you know, ask for guidance, you know. And you will be given guidance. You will, some book will pop into your arm. You know, you will walk past something and you find the just the right book or just the right documentary or just the right people. And nobody is alone in this. We're not alone. You know, it's very important for people to know that because one of the things the internet does is that it isolates us. So go and find like-minded people in the physical world, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> someday I might actually start to use my webpage again, but I really feel like nobody goes on webpages anymore. So uh, I used to be like a massive blogger in the old days and and uh, and so forth. But uh, uh, I'm just still trying to find my place uh, again on the internet. Uh, and um, but yeah, I might actually like. One of the things I'm rediscovering is my love for uh, performing poetry. And uh, I strongly encourage people, if they want to know anything about Iceland right now, is Iceland's uh, 
um, contribution to Eurovision this year. Uh, it is an incredibly hilarious thing uh, and unbelievable that the Icelandic nation voted for <laughs> this group to go. It is so incredible. Uh, needless to say, I actually performed with them once. Uh, amazing uh, social critics. Uh, and um, But yeah, it's just go Eurovision Iceland 2019 and then you will know what I, why I'm suggesting <laughs> I'm going to look it up. I don't even know. Uh, but yeah, I, well, I appreciate it so much. I, I've been wanting to talk with you for months and I'm really glad that we could find time to do this. It really was a meaningful conversation. Yeah, me I really appreciate it very much. Yeah, same here. And, and I'm just so amazed that you did uh, show Collateral Murder. And, you know, if I want to direct people in doing anything, go and show everyone Collateral Murder again. It is not old news. It's still happening. So, you know. Uh, do like Patrick <laughs> <laughs> well I really appreciate that thank you so much Patrick yes. for this podcast oh, yeah. I mean it's just been so good for me to uh, you know uh, discover it and so many of the people that have been on it uh, you know and uh, it's always really good food for thought and um, so thanks for doing and putting all the effort into this you know it's uh, it's a lot of work I know it is so I really appreciate well, it. <laughs> I'm very flattered. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week. And as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it. to the call of action.
are the chainsmakers, sleepers of all ages. Wake up, wake up, now. Wake up.